Let's take the Word of God this morning and turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, as you're turning there, we are reading of some exciting times in the life of the church. Uh, the first century, and we, uh, this is a, a quite intense book, isn't it? Just to think about, I hope it gets you excited. It gets me excited to think about, man, look at what they did. It seems that the gospel had the ability to change people's lives. It still has the ability to change people's lives today. And so it certainly is exciting to see what is going on. Remember, so this is um, Antioch in Syria is the first church that really send out a missionary, as far as we know in the scriptural revelation, we know that the first missionaries were kind of forced to be missionaries in the sense because of the persecution of Jerusalem, they were forced out of Jerusalem and wherever they went, they preached the gospel. But here is a church in Antioch and Syria, they sent out Paul and Barnabas, there was others with them, but those were the main two uh, men who preached the gospel and so from the west there, or the east coast of Syria, they sailed to the island of Cyprus. They went through Cyprus. Then they sailed northward to Asia Minor. They arrived in Perga. Then they um, took a trail up to Antioch of Pisidia. Now remember, in Antioch, they were kicked out for preaching the gospel. The word the Bible uses, they were expelled. Preaching the gospel, by the way, is preaching Jesus Christ salvation by Him without the deeds of the law. That's what we find in the message of Paul. Then they, they go to Iconium and we read that last week in Iconium they, they preached the same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were kicked out of there as well. They, they, the people were talking about stoning Paul and Barnabas and so they leave and now we find ourselves in Lystra and so Acts 14 verse 8 as we continue in our study, the Bible says, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaniah, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes, and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should Turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, fulfilling our hearts, or filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. I would like to bring your attention in verse 15. So we notice the scene because of the miracle that happened. The people called them by the names of Greek gods. And so Paul is replying to this as he sees, that it seems that he doesn't understand what's going on at the, at, at the first because they're speaking in another language. But he catches on. But notice what he says to them in verse 15. We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these 
vanities unto the living God. And so I'd like to preach a message that I've entitled, when we think about, again, the, the message of the gospel, what does it mean in, on the practical way? What does it mean to the city of Lystra there? Preaching the gospel means to turn from these vanities to the living God. So I'd like to preach on from vanities to the living God. We think about the world that we live in today, and as far as we see in the book of Acts, I think that uh, human nature is the same. History tends to repeat itself, and so we are not dealing today in the 21st century with a new species of humankind. (laughs) Humanity has always been the same. And here as Paul is preaching to this other city, as he's done both in Antioch and then in Iconium, now in Lystra, the message is the same. But we've noticed here that the reactions have been different. In uh, one of the places we know that they preach in the synagogue, here a miracle happens. And by the way, it seems that the miracle happens in the midst of Paul preaching because the Bible describes that the man who was impotent, who could not walk, was hearing what Paul was saying, and then uh, Paul healed him. And so we see here that the gospel is being preached, and the people are reacting in a certain way. And Paul is going to say, you need to turn from these vanities, and the context here is the false gods. The case in the chapter is both Jupiter and Mercurius, and these are gods, Greek gods, during that day. And he says you need to turn from those vanities to serve the living, or we could say the true God. Paul would do this on a number of occasions as he would travel when he would find idolatry. So this is interesting. We're still in Asia Minor. The first two cities that he dealt with were people mainly who were Jews. But now we're turning to a people who are, we could say, pagan, who are worshiping a multitude of gods, and that was really... Within the Greek mythology, many gods. And so here Paul has to deal with, I guess, a different circumstance. A a, a different presentation. In the first two cities was Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament scriptures. And here Paul goes back all the way to creation. All the way to the beginning because he's dealing with a pagan people or those who worship a multiplicity of gods and he brings their attention to one God. And let's affirm today that there is only one God. There is no other God. There is not a multiplicity of gods. There is only one God. So we could say whether this is a secular world or whether it is a very religious world, I think we could say that They did not believe in God. They did not believe in His deity. Much of what we find in early Greek mythology is really a lot of superstition. You know, you do certain things and then you get rewarded for this. And uh, and there is a rejection across the board of one true and living God. What often societies would find would be a God who would be convenient to them. You know, when we study Old Testament Israel, we think about how they turn from the living God and all the works that He had done for them and to them, and they began to worship idols. And we may be perplexed at that and think to ourselves, how could they do that after God did all that He did for them? We could think about their Egyptian bondage and the ten plagues. God brought the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage by a mighty hand. We have the opening of the Red Sea, and we have all those miracles, and yet Israel, uh, it was in the wilderness that they erected a golden calf, a false god, probably after the likeness of what they had learned in Egypt. And so the question often is, how do people have false gods or turn to religion? And I really want us to think here that it really centers on self. Because man will always find a God that is convenient or conducive to his life. 
And so that has not changed. Now, now today, the way we see that is people claim some form of atheism. Uh, they say there, there is no God, but the truth is they've made God themselves. And so what has been the pattern through history is that nations and people have tried to find gods that are convenient to them, to their fleshly appetites, to their indulgences. And now today it's the same, but they've made God themselves. They are, if you wait, more true to really why and who they worship. And so Paul is dealing with such a group here. And I want to notice this account we obviously here are going to look at three things. And I'll give you, we'll see the outline, verse 8. There sat a certain man. So we're going to look at the man who sat. And then we're going to look down in verse 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, we're going to look at the people who saw. And then thirdly, as we work our way down to verse 15, uh, Paul, he speaks and he says to those who were ready to offer a sacrifice unto them, we see the apostles who said. And so we're going to look at the man who sacked, the people who saw, and the apostles who said. So notice here, first of all, let's look at the man who sat. We come in a new city, the city of Lystra. And there is no doubt that often the Bible mentions uh, the signs and the wonders that they did, but often the Bible mentions specific events. And I think that specific events often communicate a spiritual truth for us. And so the reason why we have this particular man who sat down, I think there's reasons for that. As we look at this man who sat down in Lystra, we see that he is identified, first of all, for his physical impotence. Verse 8 mentions that there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet. There is no name that is given. We don't know who this man is, what his name is. We just know that he, has, he is identified for his physical impotence. And so probably most of the people in Lystra would not know this man by name. But if you mention, hey, do you know the man over there that sits in the street who is impotent? People knew who that man was. So the example that is given is some, somebody who is familiar to the city of Lystra. He is identified for his physical impotence. It is interesting also that he is identified for his irreversible condition. The Bible mentions that he was not only impotent in his feet, but he being a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. Scripture, notice, mentions that he is impotent in his feet. The, this man, basically, because he is impotent, could not stand up because he was weak in the feet. The word impotent means unable. It means weakness. It means impossible. That's what the word means. And so this man was impotent, and he had lived, apparently, according to the Bible, his entire life from his mother's womb with this impotence. This account really resembles what we find early on in Acts chapter 3 with the lame man. Remember when Paul and John went to the beautiful gate and they saw the lame man. He was also lame from his uh, mother, from, from birth. And so here we find the similar story. Now often there are many miracles and signs that Paul and Peter and Barnabas and John had done, but there are certain that are given to us because I think they communicate something. So just as the lame man, this impotent man was most likely came to some public place to ask alms of the people who were passing by, but they are known for having some infirmity, some sickness, some disease, some form of impotence from birth that they could not change themselves. And by the way, that is a picture of sin. That we are all born with a sinful nature. That we are born and we are all, from the moment of our birth, we are all dead in trespasses and sin. And that is our condition from birth. And there's nothing that, uh, can, that can be done on the outside. There's no amount of money that could bring healing to this man. And so there's no amount of money, no amount of wealth, no amount of 
of, uh, of worldly possessions that can change the impotence of this man. And so there is nothing in this world that we see that we can attain that can change the sinful condition of man. And so not only is he identified for his physical impotence, for his irreversible condition, but he is also identified for his listening ear. In verse 9, the Bible says, the same heard Paul speak. So wherever this man was, asking alms, unable to move, unable to stand, he is listening to Paul speak. And the Bible says, and who, now that's Paul, steadfastly, Beholding him, that's the impotent man, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And so what we know here is Paul is obviously probably preaching the gospel. This man who is a, um, a cripple, or we could say impotent from his birth, who is unable to stand, who has this condition, is listening to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And evidently Paul singles him out because Paul perceived that this man is listening and that this man has enough faith to be healed. Now, it's interesting because we think about throughout human history, there are many people who probably have had some form of disease, who've had some form of infirmity, who've had some form of impotence, who probably at some point believe or had some faith that maybe one day they might be healed or who've tried certain things in order to be healed or for their health to be restored. But I don't think that that's what he is talking about. The Bible mentions that as he was hearing Paul speak, Paul, he beheld him steadfastly, and he perceived that he had faith to be healed. There were many people who were sick and diseased during the time of Christ, during the time of the apostles. But let me be as clear as I can that there are many people who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ who were not healed who are not delivered from some physical infirmity. It's important for us to think as we look home to these passages and these moments that we not think that this happens to everybody who comes to Christ, that the moment that they believe in Christ or they hear the message of the gospel, that not only are they born again spiritually, but that all their physical infirmities go away. That is just not true. We study even through the epistles and Paul writes at length about Brethren uh, and sisters in Christ who are sick with some infirmity and, and they're not healed. But yet this communicates for us a picture that I believe this man believed in the message of Paul. And that Paul was going to use him as an example to show that those who believe in the gospel. Who may have the infirmity of sin in their lives that they can rid themselves of. That Jesus Christ is the answer and in just a moment's notice, their sins can be gone and their infirmity can be washed away. And so as Paul speaks, we see not only that he is identified for his listening ear, but this man is also identified for his faith. And finally, he is identified for his healing. In verse 10, Paul says with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now... Anybody ever been um, in a cast, leg cast? Anybody for any amount of time? Okay. Or even your arm, maybe a wrist, or I know you don't do shoulders, but maybe, you know, any, your muscles, they all shrink when they're not exercised. And so often when you take a cast, I think, I can't remember which arm it was, but I remember having a cast on after taking the cast off. The, the arm, comparing both arm, one was really skinny. Why? Because the muscles had not been exercised. And that was just a matter of months. So we think about lame, someone who is weak, someone who has no strength, someone whose muscles have never been exercised. So there's a significant miracle taking place. It's not just that this man can stand up and walk. It's that he is leaping. That typically does not happen 
to someone who, right, has been sitting in bed for a month because of some infirmity, they don't get out of the hospital bed and some jumping up and down. As a matter of fact, it's not recommended. They tell people, take it easy. Why? Because it's going to be progressive. It's going to take time for you to regain strength. So understand what happened here. This is a miracle. This is a man who has never exercised any of his walking muscles. He's never stood on his feet. And in a moment's notice, he's got complete strength as if he has walked his entire life. He is walking and leaping. And so this man now would be known for the rest of his life, for a miracle that took place in his life. Christians today, we should all be known for a miracle that's happened in our lives. What is that? The moment that Jesus Christ took away all of our sins. And people should identify us by that change that has happened in all of our lives. With that being said, we see the man who said, and no doubt this miracle prompted something to happen in the city of Lystra. And so then we move and we see the people who saw. The Bible says in verse 11, When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lachaniah, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Now the people here who saw what happened were, I think we all know as we read, they were misguided. Uh, we find a similar reaction a little later on in Acts chapter 19, in uh, verse 11 and 12. I'll just read it to you. The Bible says here, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, and God, uh, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the disease departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And so there is a kind of this moving, moving here in the city where people are seeing, wow, a miracle just took place. And we see here that the people saw something that got their attention. But obviously they, they were greatly and grossly misguided in their reaction. Notice we see first of all in them, we see in them an irrational declaration. At the end of verse 11 they say, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, it seems here that Paul and Barnabas did not initially understand what they were, what, what they were talking about. Um, the Bible says here, when the people saw in verse 11 what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lachaniah. So, now this was probably a dialect from that area. Now, across the Roman Empire at that time, the main language was Greek. So when Paul preached, probably in the city of Lystra, he probably preached, if he was not in the synagogue, he preached in Greek. But yet the people here, as they're saying, they're saying that in another language or another dialect, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. So I don't think that Paul and Barnabas initially understood what they were saying. And I, the reason why I say that is because initially Paul did not stop them. Now later, when they're about to offer a sacrifice for Paul and Barnabas, then he stops them. He realizes what is going on. But initially, he doesn't realize. He, he doesn't know what they're saying. But this is what indeed they're saying. The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. It would be only uh, be after when the priest of Jupiter came to offer a sacrifice that Paul and Barnabas interjected. And so we see there in them an irrational uh, declaration. You know, those who often believe in God, the only God, the only true God, are often uh, accused of being irrational. You really believe in a God that you can't see? And, and, and often they'll come down and they'll say something like this. Well, if you believe in God, and if there was truly a God, how do you explain human suffering? Uh, how do you explain cancer in children? And how do you if there was a God, if there was a just God, and so often they have to say, well, you have to reconcile. If you have a, a God that is good, and that is just, and that is righteous, why does He allow these things in the world? And we could say as Christians that often that we might you know, struggle to answer that question, but understand that the alternative to that is, think about who is really irrational. 
is those who have to explain everything else. You see, the dilemma for the Christian is how do you explain God and suffering? I, okay, now I could give you an explanation for that. One of those is sin. Another one is that God is just, and we can go into that. But the problem is those who reject God have to explain everything else. And they can't explain everything else. What do they often say? Every came, everything came from nothing. That, my friend, is irrational. It's much more difficult to explain that everything that we see today came from nothing than to say, well, it's irrational, you Christian. You try to explain God and suffering. That's actually not difficult at all. But yet that's the greatest contention that the world says against the Christian. But I say to those who are atheists, deny God, you have to explain everything else. And you cannot. Now they're irrational because the first thing is they see a miracle and they say, God's! Uh, by the way, God's, what kind of God's? The God's that they've built with their own hands. Right outside of Lystra was a, was a temple to Jupiter. There was even a priest. The priest of Jupiter was there. Often they would uh, position uh, the temple right outside the city gates. They were so superstitious that they would erect often a statue of some Jupiter or some god. Why? Because they wanted, they thought that they could protect the city. Think about it for just a moment. They build and fashion a god with their own hands and build a temple with their own hands. And then they claim that, oh, he has come down in the form of man. So they were irrational in their declaration. We also see them, we see them in an irresistible uh, deification of Paul and Barnabas. And so we go on, notice here, verse 12, they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Now, what they're doing here is they're deifying Paul and Barnabas. They're making them or assigning to them names of gods. Now, was Paul and Barnabas, were they gods? No. Do Paul and Barnabas know that they're not gods? Yes, they do. They know that they're not gods. Isn't it interesting that they are quick to assign deity to people they do not know? And I think how little they must know of their gods. Uh, how, uh, how irrational for them to assign the name of their gods to men. Jupiter was the Latin name for Zeus, which is the Greek god. Uh, he is the, what well, we could say, the main or the national small g god of the Greeks. Uh, he was represented as the most powerful of all the gods that were worshipped by the people of that day. Furthermore, the temple of Jupiter, Jupiter just stood outside of the city of Lystra, right in front of the gate. Jupiter, or Zeus as he was called, was usually depicted as sitting on a throne of gold or ivory, holding a thunderbolt in his hand and a scepter in the other. He was believed to give power to all other gods and to hold power over all of them. And they believed that everything was supposed to be subservient to His will. Zeus or Jupiter. So we think about in the family of gods, in the Greek mythology, the pagan practice, Zeus would be at the top. Now think about it. Is that all they needed to assign to Barnabas? the deification of their greatest God? Is that all they needed? To assign to the one who they thought is the most powerful God of the Greeks for just a man to come and to see a layman just get up and start running around and leaping. Zeus! Jupiter! It's him! Mercurius, who is that? Well, he's also called Mercury. 
He was the that's the Roman name for the Greek god Hermes. Uh, now, according to the popular belief of that day, he was believed to be the son of Jupiter, Zeus, and um, Maya, or I don't, I'm not sure how to say her name, that god's name, but he was basically the chief messenger of the gods and is usually known um, uh, or shown for wearing um, sandals and a helmet. He was the patron of travelers and shepherd. He was the god of thieves and robbers. The god of thieves. That's why I said earlier, gods after your own likeness, whatever you want to do. Hey, let's make a god after what I like to do. Uh, he conducted the uh, he, he would uh, call the souls of the dead into the infernal region. So I guess that's their version of, of a hell. But he was also regarded as the god of eloquence. And he was represented as being light and always depicting with quick movement. And they assigned that to Paul, Mercurius, because, well, the Bible says because he was the chief speaker. Well, that god was known as to be the one who, who spoke and the one who was eloquent. And so Paul did most of the preaching and teaching evidently. Uh, they listened to Paul. And so they assigned him this deification of Mercurius. It was irresistible for them. The, little, the, the smallest thing they saw. I wonder how many times that happened. That something would just happen and then they would just quickly assign that to, to some god and some power, some deity. But then we see here as we come to verse 13, the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. So, so time unfolds, okay? It all doesn't happen initially. That's why... I don't think Paul understood what was going on, what they were assigning to them, because they were speaking in a different language. But now, basically, the priests at that time, now they're gathering, obviously, oxen and garlands. Um, the priest of Jupiter here, obviously, was in charge of the worship of the temple of Jupiter. And as we see, he would offer sacrifices and often conduct various ceremonies as a way to bring people to worship Jupiter. Uh, the expression here, which was before the city, refers to Jupiter. Typically, a great image or some sculpture stood before the city gate where idolatry was practiced. Each city had a particular god, and the image of that god was usually built near the entrance of the city. This was really superstitious in nature so that their, this false god could protect their city. And so the priests brought oxen and garlands unto the gates. The animals were... The garlands was basically kind of a wreath or if you were a necklace so the, the oxen would be decorated. They were being offered to the gods and so let's make them presentable. And so we see all of that happening. And you know, when you observe the world, the world is quick to jump on the next new thing, the next bandwagon and to think about all oh, something new you know a lot of what we find today in our country we were just talking about that before the service well, a, lot, a lot of what we find with social media and all the things about the gender confusion all that stuff and social media and you combine all those things a lot of those things are are validating delusion in people people who used to be a you know assigned and need to need to, to have help now they're praised and held up and almost in a sense worshipped as this new thing coming down. We found some new thing. Something that all of human history has not been able to arrive at. Now we've found it. We have the answer. And they're growing more confused by the day. It's another God. It's another thing that comes down the pike. Anything but the one true and living God. Anything but the one true and living God. You see, that's what the world craves. You see, the world wants a Savior, a God after their own likeness, after their own image. 
They don't want a holy God. They don't want a righteous God. So we see the people who saw, but finally we see the apostles who said, we find here, verse 14, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes. So if you notice, it doesn't seem that they were on the scene when the sacrifice was about to be offered. The Bible says they heard of. So that means after the miracle, people were kind of gathering, hey, we Jupiter and Mercurius, they're here. And so they probably went to the priest. They tried to they obviously convinced the priest what a priest he was. He heard what the people said about Paul and Barnabas, and so he prepares now the sacrifice and the garland. He, he's about to have a ceremony for two men. And so when Paul hears that, notice, notice the reaction of Paul and Barnabas. They rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. So they were not among the people. So imagine they're sitting in the house here or maybe they've gathered people, they're preaching to people. That's probably most likely. Somebody comes in the door. Now this is just glorified imagination, but I'm trying to put things in perspective. Whether it was in a house or in an auditorium like this, Somebody came in and says, Paul, Barnabas, they're about to offer sacrifices to you uh, at, at the temple of Jupiter. The, the, the priest of Jupiter has the oxen and the garland. They're about to have the ceremony for you. Now, Paul's reaction is most telling. He rents his garments. He can't, he can't, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to rip my, but can you imagine... He rents his garment. He is so angry because what do we know Paul has been preaching about? Jesus Christ. That's everywhere he went. That's what he did. And yet they assign deity to Paul. And so Paul is so upset. He's so torn by that. He stares his own garment. The Bible says, you see the intensity. He ran in among the people crying out. So let's say we have this temple and everybody, they're about, they have the oxen and the garland, everybody's about to offer the sacrifice to, now interesting, if you're offering the sacrifice to the gods who are there, Paul and Barnabas, shouldn't they be there? You see, it's not about Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're just, it's the impulse of men. And so Paul here, he's not part of that scene, but evidently if they were in the temple of Jupiter or outside of the temple of Jupiter where the sacrifice would typically be held, he, he comes in the midst, he runs there, he says, stop, everybody stop. The Bible says he cries out. Can you imagine the scene? In other words, Paul is saying, this is not what I wanted to happen by the message or by the healing of the lame man. Which tells us once again, it's not about the miracles. If it was about the miracles, Paul would have said, Oh look, they're happy about the miracles, let's give them more. He says, you've misunderstood everything. And so what does he say? This is what he says, verse 15, notice. And saying, sirs, why? Now I say this and I read this mildly, but he is crying out. So just put that in your sanctified imagination. He is crying out saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. And so he is crying out who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Notice what he proclaims. First of all, Paul and Barnabas, they proclaimed, proclaimed their own humanity. We're men just like you. We're of like passions. It's interesting that he uses the word passion. Of like impulse. The impulse you just had, like we're 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 made of the same cloth, where we got the same impulses. 
You know, Paul knew what it meant to be impulsed when he persecuted Jesus Christ. He was impulsed all the time. He says, we're men of like passions as you. And so they proclaimed their own humanity. They also proclaimed the folly of idolatry. In his message, he says, we preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God. So evidently, Paul, in his message early on, when the lame man had been, the impotent man had been, uh, was able to walk and to leave, what had Paul been preaching about? Well, evidently, when he came in the city, he had to go by the temple of Jupiter. He had to see the statue erected of Jupiter. And perhaps, Paul, when he came to the city, he says, this is a false god. You should not be worshiping these vanities, whether it is Jupiter or Mercury's. Stop uh, worshiping false gods after your own imagination. He basically tells them and declares that their idolatry, he mentions the word vanities, means empty. Empty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you turn there with me in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, Corinth was filled with idolatry too. The city was. All kinds of indulgence uh, could be enjoyed in Corinth and When Paul writes to the the believers at Corinth, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 8, notice verse 4, As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is what? Nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, and there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God. God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. You see, Paul evidently had preached about the exclusivity of God. There is only one God. There is only one Savior. There is no other God. Perhaps what we often find as Paul had preached about God, perhaps what they thought was, well, here is another God. You go to many foreign countries today, particularly even in in India with Hinduism, part of that is many gods. And often you present Jesus Christ, they will gladly accept another God because they already got hundreds, so what's one more? But when the preaching of Jesus Christ comes in and says, there is no other God. You cannot have another God but the only true and living God. The wonderful thing about the God that we have is we don't view Him as one that we have fashioned ourselves. We view Him as the one who has fashioned us. Can you imagine carving something or putting together a statue or melting some type of metal and then molding and shaping a God after your thoughts and your imaginations. And by the way, that's why as Bible believers, we do not create any graven image. We, we, we don't have a graven image. No, we, we don't bow before a statue. We don't bow before a relic. We don't have a picture of what we think God looks like or what we think even Jesus Christ looked like. We don't have, I know here we have, and I'm not big on symbols, sometimes we'll even have a cross maybe on the pulpit, and look, there's nothing wrong with that, but the point is, there's nothing significant about that artifact. It doesn't impart any grace. It has no power. Why? Because God is invisible. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Truth. They proclaim the exclusive deity of the living God they proclaim even it's interesting what he says he says we preach unto you verse 15 that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God he uses the word living for a purpose because all the other gods are not living they're dead they cannot hear you they cannot see you they cannot hear you cry which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, nevertheless he left not himself without witness, and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. 
Paul proclaims the long-suffering of God. Verse 16, Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Don't see the long-suffering of God as God being slack concerning His promise. As some men count slackness. No, no. You see, God is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul says, you know why God has allowed you to continue in your idolatry? Because He is long-suffering. Your idolatry merits the judgment of God, and the only reason why God has been long-suffering to you is because He loves you. He emphasizes the acts of creation. He mentions the rain. We could say falling on the just and on the unjust. He's talking about what? The order of creation. You look around you and you think, look at the order in the, in the world. You think of the seasons. You think of the trees. You think of all the things that you, you studied. And I really believe the more we're finding out in the areas of studies and science that people are getting closer to understanding how everything was designed. I think they came out a few years ago, some big news agency, they came out, they found out just a few years ago in studying DNA that all humanity came from one man and one woman. Now I know this is shocking to us. No, it's not shocking to us. We should already know that. But the point is, science is catching up to the Bible. And so the more we get to know and the more we get to see, we say, wow, look at what God has done. And he brings their attention to basically the goodness of God, the rain, the fruitful seasons. He's talking about what? The order of everything in the world. The order of everything in the world has to originate from something. And by the way, that is logic and common sense. If I uh, hold in my hand, if I have a computer or an iPad, and, and we've just found it out in the field out there, and said, oh, look, look at this thing. Wow, look at how intricate. And we would open it up when we see all the soldering and all the things that are complicated in there, all the chips and all, that, all those things. And, and you would ask me and say, say wow, Pastor, where, where'd, you, where, where, where'd you find this? I said, well, I found it in the field. And, well, how'd it get there? I said, probably just got there. It probably just, poof, it appeared. You would tell me you've lost your mind. Wouldn't you? Why? Because you, by your observation and your common sense, you say, no, no, no. There is too much involved in designing and assembling and ordering this thing that it is impossible, but that somebody had to build it and place it there. For someone to look at creation and say, poof, is illogical, completely illogical and irrational. We do that with nothing today. So... He says, rain, seasons. Just look at... Is it interesting that he deals with that? It seems that that was their struggle. Why? They had been creating gods. And he says, no, God created you. He ordered this world. He says, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness and that he did good. And gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, fulfilling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, we might think here in verse 15, well, he, he left not himself without witness. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And I, I agree with that. But the point is, he started with the order of creation. The basics for these pagan people. These heathens. You see, if you deny creation then you deny everything else. But if you accept the premise that there is a creator, then you can also accept that God is just and He is judge. And also you can accept the premise of redemption for man. 
But if you deny that he is creator, the psalmist says, if the foundation be removed, what can the righteous do? If you take away the foundation of creation, what, what, what can we preach on? That's why it's troubling to think that there are some Christians who hold to the doctrine of evolution. That's strange. To think that they would take away the foundation upon which the gospel stands. We read in verse 18, With these saying, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Paul and Barnabas were not in Lystra for the miracle. They were in Lystra for the message. The preaching of the gospel. That's why they were there. And so they, the Bible says, scarce restrain the people. They almost had to physically stop them. Please don't do this. It's almost like as if Paul is saying that. Turn from these vanities to the living God. It's as if they were continuing in their ceremonies. To where Paul had to be, it's almost like he had to grab a hold of them and stop them. Although it didn't didn't get to that point. Don't do this. Don't do this. I want to encourage you this morning. Do not allow the world to convince you that you are irrational because you believe the the scriptures. Do not allow the world to portray you as some illogical person that knows nothing and that is stupid and dumb and that needs guidance. Scripture has made it clear that we know who the irrational ones often are. There are those who've made themselves God. Those who are leading the world in the wrong direction. And so may the Lord help us to see that the preaching of the gospel is the answer. Whether it was in Acts here to the Jews in the synagogue... Or whether it was to those who were idolaters in Lystra. The gospel is the answer to both. For the Jews it started with Abraham. For the idolaters it started with creation. But where do both of those bring us to? The same place. Jesus Christ.